Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 244, recorded July 30th, 2021. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Brian Aachen. And I'm Brandon Brainer. Hey, Brandon. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's really good to have you here. You're one of the first um, volunteers, I'll put it as, when I said, hey, we're looking for some folks to come be with Brian and me on the show and uh, you know, throw your name in the hat. And here you are. Happy to have yeah. you here. Oh, it's very exciting. Very, very exciting. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So before we jump into the topics, just tell us a quick bit about yourself. Yeah. So um been in software development for 10 years, uh, half of it in management, half of it as an individual contributor, about seven years of it with Python. Um, you know, it's funny when I first started programming, I, I lived at a Raspberry Pi and thought Python is so confusing with not having brackets and all these spaces and it's so, I don't understand <laughs> it. And no, I, I can't go back. It's so much easier. Yeah. Yeah, I had a similar experience coming from um, C Sharp and C++ mm -hmm. and stuff with all the symbols. And I thought, in my mind, I thought those are necessary for programming. Like you mm -hmm. have to have the semicolons, you have to have the curly braces and the extra parentheses because how else will the parser and everything, like that's how you yeah. express stuff in programming. And then when I got into Python, I felt a little bit weird with it missing. But then when I went back, I felt even weirder. Like, why are all these symbols here? Yep. I just learned that they're not necessary. Why have I been doing this the last 10 years of my life? What is wrong with me? Exactly. It was, it was a real interesting experience. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of interesting, Brian, um, all the stuff on PIP, quite interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I, I don't know. We, we're doing this on Friday because, because I, was, well, I wasn't here on Wednesday. I was uh, in Florida. Um, and so because I you're a like, jet setter, basically. You just, <laughs> yeah. No, you the never first know time I've traveled in like two years uh, for a business Was trip. it weird? Yeah, was it weird? Uh, uh, no, it was like wearing a mask all the way there. I kind of got used to no masks here in Oregon, but then yeah. now I guess they're changing all that again and we're bringing them back. But, you know, all what's old is new again. But yep. one of the things I tried to do is I tried to work on the plane and uh, in Python, of course. So the problem with snakes on a plane um, uh, is there's no Internet. Um, so I had this issue. I had... Uh, um, and I've already, I've already put it up on the screen, the solution. Um, but the, uh, so my issue was I, I had a bunch of, I had a project I wanted to work on. Uh, it's got talks set up and when you run talks, talks creates for environment in uh, virtual environments, and then fills those up with all your dependencies and your code using pip. Pip goes out to PyPI to get that stuff. I mean, you can cache it and that does help. And you do that locally on your machine, but it still looks out at the internet. Um, and this won't work on a plane. Um, so uh, I reached out to, to, to tw the Twitterverse and uh, and I thought I found a solution, but it, I'm not even going to say the wrong solution. Uh, Paul Gansel pointed me in the direction of uh, environmental variables in PIP. You can just set find links to a local directory and then set uh, with PIP find links and then PIP no index um, so that uh, the PIP doesn't even look out there. It looks at, at a local directory. So, um, so what I did is I'm going to, uh, and I'm going to, uh, I guess we'll look at, I was surprised. Hey, wait, wait, go back. I got a quick question before we go on. Okay. So it'll look in that local directory for the packages, the wheels and whatnot. Yeah. How do you get them there in the first place? Okay. So I got some pre-work that I did. So, um, I'm like, okay, how do I get those? And normally when I, when I want to put something in a local directory or something, I'll just use, uh, uh, was it pip download? Um, you can do that, but that's a lot of work to try to figure out what you did. So what I did is I just, before I got on the plane, I'm using the, the airport, um, internet, uh, I, um, which you, everybody can harass me later about how that's not secure. It's fine. Um, 
But uh, I ran talks, you do it at home then if you want, uh, run talks with an internet connection. And what it's going to do is you're going to have a whole bunch of your environments within talks. You're going to have all your, all your, all Python 7, Python 8, whatever you got in there. Or not 8, 3, 8, 3, 7, 3, 10, whatever. <laughs> you're living um, the future. <laughs> just go through all of them. Just do a search and grab all of the, uh, what do we got? The uh, site packages directories. Grab everything out of all of those. <laughs> And copy them to uh, like a local wheels directory or something, something, something outside of your uh, work environment. I just stuck it at the top level, like users Auken or something. I stuck it up there. And then I, and then you can, it, then that's everything because you know you ran it. And then go ahead and set up uh, these environmental variables. I actually just stuck the environmental variables in my, in my, um, my, uh, just in a little script to, to set them while I'm, while you, I'm developing. Yeah. You know what I, I learned that was pretty interesting that the activate script for a virtual environment, you can yeah. put environment variables in there. So you could have like a offline virtual environment and an online virtual environment, and those could toggle different environment. Just which one you activate will just make this happen. That'd be awesome. Yeah, yeah. so this, and that's one of those like, uh, uh, it's all virtual environments all the way down. Um, it And the environments are, the virtual, <laughs> these environmental variables have to be set in the environment that you're running it in. So they can be set in the virtual environment that you were using to run talks, even though talks will generate others. It just, it works right. I don't know how it works, but it works. Uh, anyway, this super helped me out. And then when I went to, um, yeah, so then grab all those, throw them in there and then use the find links and no index and it'll it'll just work great. Um, the the thing that, the reason why I think I didn't find it at first is that the note within the, the PIP documentation just says everything that's a flag within PIP uh, is also a, an environmental variable. It just, so if you searched for it, you probably won't find it. It just has this comment that says all command line options can be set as environmental variables using uh, all upper scores under uh, uppercase and then underscores instead of uh, dashes. So oh, that's interesting. a cool tip. Yeah. Yeah, so. very. yeah. Brandon, what do you think? Yeah. At first I was confused a little bit about why you wouldn't just pip install before you got on the plane, but I've never actually used talks to do any testing. So it sounds like that installs in a different directory. So when you do your, your talks runs that it needs to reinstall yeah. them. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, cre it creates a new virtual environment. You can tell it, you can run it ahead of time and you can tell it to not uh, install those. But I was messing with my talks, my environments. So I really wanted to make sure I could clean them out. So you can, um, mm. I think this is, I mean, yeah, there's probably other cool solutions, but this is what I used. Oh, uh, that's yeah, interesting it, though. It creates all the virtual environments. Um, so each each different, like 3.7, 3.8, 3.9, they'll all be different virtual environments that it runs your tests in. So. That's uh. So it's one of those things that we depend so much on the internet to do our job that when you don't have it, like, what do yeah. I do? So that's, that's interesting. Yeah. And that's like, you know, 20 hours of work I, I would have lost if I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway. Yeah, this is, this is very cool. Nice, nice tip, especially the environment variables just for PIP. Like you can change the verbosity or the mirrors or all sorts of stuff, right? Yeah. All right. So this time... I have an extra, extra, how many extras? Let's see, I have eight extras. Extra, extra, six times extra, hear all about it. So I'll be kind of quick, but they're all kind of interesting. Okay. So I just want to give a quick shout out uh, to V Brown Bag. Um, I did a talk over there on Pydantic. So a 45 minute presentation on Pydantic and how you can do all sorts of cool stuff with that. We've already talked about why Pydantic is excellent. So very, very neat. Uh, check that out. And I also want to give a shout out to an episode that I did that I think is on TalkPython that I think is going to be really useful for people. It's about building little automation tools, like instead of trying to build big apps, like maybe a little app with rumps that runs up in your menu or uh, a little app that 
you can do a bunch of stuff and it'll generate like a query for some other platform that's not like SQL, but you know, sort of think SQL like type of things and so on. So I had a bunch of cool guests. I had Rusty Gregory, Kim Van Wick, KJ Miller, and actually Rivers Cuomo from Weezer on the show. He's doing amazing stuff. So people should check that out if that sounds interesting and inspiring. That sounds so cool. I can't wait to watch this. Yeah, this is this is gonna be one of my favorite talk by episodes in, in the near term, I'm pretty sure. Okay, enough of my stuff. On to other the six other things that uh, we haven't done. Remember we had Shari Eskines on the show a while back? Yeah. That was, that was really fun. She talked about a bunch of great things, but she also did a day in the code, Python, like storybook for kids. So her storybook for kids, which I know you and I both got a copy, right, Brian? Yeah, and I'm, it's actually pretty cool. Yeah, like it. Yeah, it's cool. So think like a big, large picture book that tells a story, but about programming for kids rather than... I don't know, like a day in the park or whatever. So that book's actually out. I just want to, that'll be a link in the show notes. If you've heard that episode and you want to check it out, you know, could actually get the book now. But we talked about GitHub Copilot and some other things like that. I want to give a, a shout out to another tool that's kind of like this, but way more tamed down. And it plugs into all sorts of different IDEs called Tab9. Have we talked <laughs> about Tab9? I don't think, I, don't think I, so. I don't think I have either, uh, but it's, actually really well developed. It's got a, a ton of different platforms. For example, if you go over here and check it out, it's like, well, what do you want? VS Code, you want PyCharm, you want WebStorm, you want Atom, you want Emacs, you want RubyMind, you want oh, Jupyter. Vim. Straight Vim. Yeah, straight awesome. Vim. Yeah. And so this is a, a tool that you plug into your editor. Pull up Python. That's expensive to have JavaScript. Excuse me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you can come down here and it will help basically look at your code, look at the keyword arguments, and instead of just giving you autocomplete for the symbols like functions and fields and stuff, it tries to kind of bring it together. It's not GitHub Copilot in the sense that it's trying to pull other people's code and inject lard. It's not like stack overflow, copy and paste with a tab type of thing. It's, it's looking at what's on your screen and trying to pull it together to like complete a little bit more. So if you have like a username equals quote Brian, and then you call a function that takes a username, it'll suggest you pass in that variable value and so on. What do you think? Actually, I definitely want to try this. I think this um, having a smarter code complete, um, that sounds just like about the right level that I want to try first. So, Yeah. Brandon? Yeah. Yeah. I actually had this and uh, GitHub Copilot on at the same time. Oh my that, gosh, what happened? <laughs> it's a disaster. <laughs> it's, uh, but yeah, I like this because as much as I like VS Code, I've, uh, I'm a huge JetBrains fan and the fact that you can't use it in you know, PyCharm or anything else like that is, is very disappointing. So Yeah, I agree with um, that. Yeah. Well, I think so, I, I want to get like five AI coding systems together and they can just mob program by themselves. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So when I look at this stuff, one of the first things I think, okay, it's using AI. It's taking, it's like I said, it's taking the stuff out of my code and then applying the AI to that. Does that mean my code is being passed to somewhere that I don't want my code to be? And so somewhere, yeah, here you go. It says your code is yours and yours alone. It runs locally without sending any source code anywhere. You can even work on a plane, Brian. Nice. Anyway, uh, I, I ran across this. I was talking to the folks from there and I thought, this is pretty cool. I'll give a quick shout out to that because the AI coding assistants are all the, the rage right now. Is this a paid thing or a free thing? Yeah, it costs money, but there is a free version. So you get like what they call basic completion. Bad, and some bad suggestions. For free. Yeah, exactly. Like they would put like every tenth is a bug, but the other nine are really good. No, I, I'm just joking about that. I don't know. But you know, there's a free one and then you can pay for uh, more. Brandon, did you do the paid one? Do you know the difference? Um, I just use the free one. I assume yeah, cool. that there's probably, like I said, better models and 
I think there's like a limit to the amount you can do with the free one. So it just stops working. You actually have to do the work yourself. Yeah. So, uh, to be fair, sad. it doesn't look expensive. So No, yeah. no, it's reasonably priced. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's 12 bucks a month for the paid version. I always feel like when people are like, oh, well, I'm not going to pay, you know, $10 for this thing. It's like, this is your job all day. You know, how much <laughs> do you actually make from this job? Like if this could, you know, save you an hour, surely. Anyway, that's a different discussion. Speaking of discussions, following up on one of our episodes with Simon Willison, who talked about Apple Photos and SQLite and using um, Dog Sheep and Dataset to analyze it, Rhett Turnbull pointed out a project that he created that will, um, says, macOS photo pack, uh, oh, the OSX photos Python package exposes all of your data to your Python apps, and the next release will provide the OCR stuff out of Apple's vision framework. So people have been tracking that. There's some really exciting stuff coming to the Apple photo, you know, iOS, et cetera, where if you take a picture of something, then it'll automatically do OCR and you can actually select and copy the text out of, say, a sign in a picture and paste that somewhere. So that'll be stored in the database. And apparently this thing will give you access to that text. Oh, that'd be cool. Can I get that in my car so that I can just have somebody else reading signs for me? (laughs) That'd be sweet. (laughs) Someday, perhaps. All right. So, uh, Rhett, thank you for that. Okay. Last uh, three things. Really quickly, I released three uh, packages to PyPI last week. Uh, two of them are related. They're around taking HTML and templates, either Jinja or Chameleon, one package for each language, and trying to reuse them in like really clean, simple ways. So if you've got like some fragment, say like an example I have on the site is a, a video app and it's got like a thumbnail of a YouTube video, then the title of the author and then the number of views. And if you want to show that all over the place, you could either copy that code and replicate it. Or with this inside your template, you just say render template or render partial and you point at some HTML fragment bit and it'll apply your model to that sub thing and allows you to basically create functions that return HTML inside of your templates. This is neat. So it's, yeah, so it's super, super simple. So like for the videos, you have like literally this little render partial, you know, quote shared video square and you pass the video over. Uh, really, really nice. So there's a Jinja partials for Flask people and there's a Chameleon partials that does exactly the same thing for Pyramid. And then last thing, adding the Chameleon template language to fast API so you can build proper web apps. I published that. It's been around for a little while, but I finally published it to PyPI. So you just put a little decorator onto a fast API function and it becomes a HTML endpoint rather than a API endpoint. Have, have you just, have you been using Chameleon longer? Is that why you're more comfortable with it? Or? I, no, uh, I probably have been doing more Chameleon than Jinja, um, but I do a lot. But I, the thing that I really, really like about Chameleon, let's see if I can find an example. It'll probably be good enough. So what I really like about Chameleon is that it is valid HTML as it is. Mm. Whereas with Jinja and the Django framework and a bunch of other frameworks, Mako, and you know, you go into other areas like Razor in ASP.NET, all of these are are nice, but they all have HTML, HTML, blocks of code, blocks of code, HTML, block of code, HTML, right? This is all driven through attributes, it's like view. So like here, if I want something that's a loop, I can just say tau colon repeat as an attribute. Or if I want, yeah, things like that, okay. right? Or you do condition, you say tau colon conditional and you put it in there. So this is actually 100% still valid HTML with just attributes that don't make sense. So to me, it just feels cleaner. That's why I like it better. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Ooh, I kind of tore through all those uh, without giving you all a lot of uh, chance to talk about them. But anyway, uh, that's that's my oh, extra, extra A time. Yeah, yeah. thanks. Cool. All right, Brandon, you're up next. Yeah, so uh, this is something I came across on Twitter, um, and I, I signed up to do it. Um, so it's uh, Kaggle's 30 Days of Machine Learning. Uh, basically what it is, I guess if you don't know what Kaggle is, 
Uh, it's a place for data scientists to uh, find and publish data sets. Uh, they have online Jupyter notebooks that allow you access to you know, free GPUs and things like that to run your machine learning models on. Um, you can collaborate with other data scientists and things like that. And, you know, machine learning is one of those things I've always kind of wanted to get into, but I've always been a little scared. I'm not sure the 100% of the resources to go to. So I saw this uh, 30 Days of Machine Learning. And what's nice is they give you, a you know, an introduction into Python, the things you need to learn from Python to know how to do, you know, machine learning. Um, they show you how to, you know, build models in their uh, Jupyter Notebooks. Um, and, yeah, so you go through that. You uh, learn some basic and inter uh, intermediate machine learning concepts. Uh you get some uh, certificates. So if you want to post those like, you know, with your resume or something like that, you can say, hey, I did, did some learning with uh, Kaggle. And the cool- I, I cool, haven't done any of this, but I suspect that if you ranked pretty highly on Kaggle and then you put that on your LinkedIn profile or yeah. you're trying to get a job, that, I mean, that speaks pretty well. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. And I think the cool thing is like at the end of it, there's a competition that they have with, a, I think it's like teams up to three. And it's like for only people that ran through the course. So you're not competing against people who have been doing, you know, machine learning for years. And kind of give you a little bit of that taste into what you know machine learning competitions are like. So I think it'll be interesting. It'll be fun. Are you going to do it? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. What I think is valuable here is the constraints, right? You know, you have here's your data that you're going to be working from. Here's the type of problem you're solving. And so often when you're in a, a beginner, whether it's machine learning or web development or whatever, it's really hard to know what is the right sized problem to attack. Yeah. It's, it's so easy to go. Well, that's too small. That's not interesting. Or oh, wait, all of a sudden I tried to build Instagram and I got. <laughs> or whatever you know yeah and it'll, i think it's nice you know if they give you the data like yeah i think a lot of times the bigger you know the biggest part of machine learning and you know, data science is cleaning the data and making sure you have the right data and the right uh, attributes to look at hopefully they walk you through how to you know they should walk you through how to do that and kind of give you a taste of how to do that so it'll be a good learning yeah. experience I, I suspect this is free is that true yeah yeah, yeah that's true it's uh free yep all you need is yeah. a keg lookout yeah and it starts august 2nd which like four days away so yeah, don't hesitate. Get in there if you're going to be part of this. This sounds neat. And uh, actually, there's there's this, but even if somebody doesn't want to do this, Kaggle has a lot of learning opportunities uh, for people that want to sort of learn, learn the tools. Um, it's it's an interesting resource for learning how to do this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's a, a great pick. Brian, you're next, right? All right. Yeah. Um, so been testing a lot. <laughs> More testing. <laughs> so uh, I one, one of the things, I, I had a project that was... Um, that was set up to, to use talks, but I also, um, early on when GitHub Actions came about, I, uh, I put it up on GitHub Actions too, but I was, um, I was trying to, you know, trying to understand the workflow a little bit more. At first there were a lot of resources. And then I came across this recently, uh, just this weekend, this week, last week, uh, building and testing Python. It's uh, part of the GitHub Actions guides. Um, and it's, um, it's actually pretty great. And it goes through, a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, uh, it's around um, a, a set of docs that talks about, you know, Python, Ruby, Java, a whole bunch of other things. But within the Python space, um, it really is a, a full setup of how, how to run this uh, yourself. I the, the, the reason why I brought this up is I wanted to, um, hopefully people are using talks. I love talks. Um, the, one of the reasons why I like it is because you can, it's kind of like a CI system, but locally you can sort of run through making sure your installs work, your builds work, um, and all your extra tools that you've got hooked up. Right. And one having of the problems is you, you just got your Python, whatever, version 3.9, 3.8, whatever installed, and you run your test, it runs on that. But you want to kind of exhaustively go, I want to test on all the versions yeah. that I, in theory, theory, support every time. Yeah, or, or you might have an error in your pyproject.toml file or your setup.py, and you're not seeing that because you're not 
you're not completely you're not rebuilding it um right. but talks will do that but so will ci systems but it's kind of nice to have it set up both but if you and the uh, directions here are how to uh one it starts with directions on how to run uh you know pytest and uh, to install dependencies and build and lint and run pytest on your project but if you already have talks set up this is sort of a duplicate effort but if you i think you want to jump down to the talk section of this uh, document because it shows you just how to run talks directly and it's a it's a smaller setup and essentially what GitHubaxis is doing is setting up a python or a python environment and then installing talks and running your talks environments and so you're you're get, you're having that same code from your talks any file uh running uh within github actions and it's I really like it nice. because uh, it's going to try to do the same thing locally as it will in ci yeah the the one change i want to m- mention uh to flag out and i've got we'll have this in the show notes as uh the i've modified this example because uh hopefully um i didn't it didn't make sense to me at first this the example they show is on push so when you push uh, to a branch, it'll run these actions. But you also want to set up um, a pull re- on pull requests. So just add uh, pull underscore request right next to push. And um, then so when people do pull requests to your project, you'll it'll run your uh, talks also. And then also, if you want to try to run 3.10, and hopefully you are right now because, um, because 3.10 is just around the corner, uh, add uh, 3.10-dev. Uh, into the Python list. Oh, so dash that, dev. Interesting. That'll run the RC, huh? Yeah. Um, well, I don't. I don't know if it's the RC or the. I think you can do RCs also, but um, dev is, I think, close enough, and you don't have yeah. to muck with it all the time. So, is that like the latest build three ten or something? I think so. I think it's just the latest yeah. three ten build. Um, and then nice. at the bottom, there's like this thing that talks e dash pi, and that dash e usually means run run the environment run a specific one but i didn't set up a i don't set up the one that just says pi i usually say pi 37 or pi 38 um but uh i got some help um uh also on twitter to understand this what that does is it just will pick the one that's valid and i tried it out and it works um if you do this this code it'll it'll run the correct one so very nice very nice out in the live stream, we have Felix. Hey, Felix says, I love talks to using it for my strong typing package. And it's awesome. And welcome, Felix. Yeah, we covered your strong typing package a few weeks ago. That's really good. Yeah. Oh, and then uh, Oli uh, says uh, the machine machine language course sounds good. So thanks, Oli. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, Brian, you spoke about the stuff on the plane. And I've got an alternative solution for you. Okay. That th- this is really interesting. Um, this one comes from Patrick Park, this recommendation, and it's called Python-Venderize. So vendoring a dependency in Python means instead of linking to the package you get from pip, you just go, I'm going to find that code and just jam it into my project and just copy it over, right? Which it's a bit of a hassle because then you've got to like keep syncing it and stuff. But for small things like, you know, six, uh, unsync, you know, like things that are one file or, or they're just pure Python and they don't have many dependencies, you know, what's, it might just make sense if there were an easy way to just make that like a subdirectory, sub-module of your package, then when somebody runs your code, they don't have to pip install anything. No mm-hmm. virtual environments, nothing, right? And so with this Python vendorize, that's what you can do for pure Python packages. So the idea is if you've got uh, some code that has you know, lightweight dependencies, you know, I don't know if I do this with something like Flask that depends on Vixoig, that depends on who knows what, right? Click and so on. Like you don't, I wouldn't necessarily go too deep, but for things that are smallish, what you can do is you can set up a vendorize.toml file 
And then in here, just list the packages and you give it a location. You say, I wanted to go from my project into underscore vendor in this example, but that could be whatever. And then you just run vendorize, Python dash vendorize in the working directory where that, uh, that TOML file is. And what it'll do is it'll actually copy the, the package details over for that project. And then in your code, you just say from underscore vendor import package name, six requests, whatever. Interesting. That's interesting, right? Yeah. Yeah. So then you've got a program or a package really that has effectively zero dependencies, even though you're still using some of these third-party libraries. Do you know if it, it'll re-download, if you run this again, will it re-download them or do you know? I would, I don't know for sure. And I looked. I didn't see anything in the documentation one way or the okay. other. It is honestly a little sparse on documentation. This but. is an interesting idea. And actually, um, and, and it often, like, this does happen whether people like it or not. Um, and it's uh, completely legitimate according to a lot of the, I mean, the the uh, licensing, right? Uh, for, yeah. Um, and for, but for commercial projects, this is very common uh, that I, I don't want to go out and pull things from PIP all the time. I want to just have things local so that they're, they're just built locally. Right. And like, it might not be for um, just to avoid the the pip install. It might be that you want extreme control over yeah. what's shipped and you don't want something that might happen to that package coming down through pip and breaking your code. Even if you pin it, you know, you might want to just have more control over right. it. Right. Or a decision that somebody <laughs> takes the, the project in a completely different direction that you don't want. You're, it's like, it's like, this is a very hard fork sometimes. So. <laughs> Yeah, I suspect rerunning Python dash vendorize will re-download it, but I don't know for sure. Brandon, go ahead. Was, uh, can you pin versions in this? Well, Good it question. looks like the packages in the uh, vendorize.toml, it doesn't say that you can do versions, but I would be guessing, I, I was guessing here, I'm thinking that you can probably pin them, but... Yeah, I'm just guessing that it passes whatever that string is over to pip and... Yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah, that's what I was thinking as well, so probably you can. We'll have to try it out. And somebody can tell us <laughs> if we're wrong. Felix is right there with you, Brandon, asking, <laughs> do you know if we can specify a version? I don't know. Like I said, it doesn't say in the docs uh, about it, but yeah, it's it's a small project, but I think it's an interesting idea. And it could be, you know, if you just have these real simple dependencies and you're like, ah, geez, we're going to have to create environments and have all these complicated instructions because of, you know, a few little files, like just here's a nice way to do that. Obviously, you can do it yourself, right? But here's a yeah. more repeatable type of way. Yeah. Cool. All right. Brandon, take us out. What's your last one? Yeah. Uh, so there, there's a, a newer project out there called Supabase. Um, I feel really weird Supabase. saying the name Supabase. <laughs> <laughs> you got to get. Um, you got to say it with an attitude. It sounds like, like a car audio product. I'm going to go put a Supabase in my car. But uh, basically what it is. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> when you're doing the queer, it's like. Dum, 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 dum. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's it, they tout themselves as an open source Firebase alternative. Um, so if you've ever like done a lot of JavaScript or been friends with JavaScript developers, a lot of people use Firebase because it provides authentication. Um, I, I believe they're like more of a NoSQL database, um, yeah. real time updates. So if you subscribe to database changes, uh, your app will change based on if it, you know, if something changes. Um, so what Superbase is doing yeah. is something kind of similar, uh, but they are running basically a Postgres database for you. And then they've got different open source projects that are wrapping it. Um, so they have the authentication part, uh, which they have, they have a wrap around the GoTrue library from Netlify uh, for handling authentication. So if you want to have authentication for your app, you know you can easily do uh, first name or email password, uh, just email that sends like an authentication link to the email. Uh, they have an extensive list of OAuth2 providers. So if you want to add OAuth to a 
um, they handle all of that for you. Um, yeah. So the, the main idea of this database is kind of like, I want to have a front end JavaScript framework, maybe hosted on the back end by Python, but then I just mm -hmm. wanted to have like a database access over an API, just like the entire yep. CRUD story. Right. Yep. And all of a sudden you run into all these challenges of offline of authentication and, and stuff. And that's what this is mostly focused on, right? Yeah. So they, uh, they have a package they call it where it gets, if you get anybody can use it called Postgres. Oh, mm -hmm. like I can't say it. Uh, it's a wrapper around, uh, Postgres that makes basically gives you an API to your Postgres database that you don't have to write. Absolutely. And they implement that in a, a way that, you know, you can just, like you said, make those HTTP calls, um, to, uh, write, read to basically do your CRUD operations to your database. And what's nice is when you, whenever you update your database, they automatically generate the API documentation for you. So you don't, you're not writing any controllers, any services or anything to do that. It's just provided by them. And, uh, like you said, it's, Looks like it definitely a JavaScript thing, but they're actually just released a Python uh, library for it. They shove up right now. Super base dot dash pi. pi. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so your snake has base. <laughs> but, <laughs> anyways, uh, so it's currently, I believe, in alpha. So I, I wouldn't suggest using it in like uh, you know enterprise application. But it's definitely something to try, uh, you know, play around with if you want a simple way to do authentication, um, access to a Postgres database. Um, and what's nice too is, you know, if they give you the Postgres database, but you don't actually have to access it through their terminal where their UI, you can connect to it through, you know, whatever you use for your database. Um, and yeah, uh, going along the uh, no internet development, they also have a SUFA-based local that you can run locally, so you don't need internet to do your development. So if you, you know, lose power, or you want to get on a plane or something, you can still do your work. Yeah, this is, uh, this is super cool. And I, one of the things that's interesting here is the subscribing to the real-time changes, right? That's, yeah. that's pretty unique especially over a remote API. So, you know, if, if you've got some front end and you want everyone to see those changes, possibly, guess you could even do this in like a Qt or a WX Python app or even a terminal app, but you might even want to just say, I've got a fast API app and I'm going to fire up a WebSocket there. So all the clients just get that, the changes streamed down. So, you know, the changes stream to you and then they kind of like multiplex on out to all the the people watching that'd be neat yeah i was thinking something like that. i was curious if you set up like an aws lambda so where something changes and you need to send out a notification email or something to get hooked up to that and it would just kick that off for you um, oh yeah. yeah so things like that yeah that's a good find i had not heard about super base but it does look super yeah it, it looks really useful actually do you know what the story is so when i'm looking at over here they talk about okay so here's how you specify your um api endpoint at app.superbase.io is there and it's in this open source thing, but there's probably some database as a service or something equivalent that I, I maybe sign up for or I pay for. Do you know what the story is around that? Um, I don't know. I mean, surely they are not running the database for the world for free. They've got to charge at least bandwidth. Yeah, so th that, that's the interesting thing. So there's a, their pricing model is a little confusing. I know that I feel like they've gotten some funding um, and I don't know how they, they're going to plan to make money with because the pricing that they have is like you know, $25 a project a month. And that gives you unlimited API calls, real-time functionality, mm -hmm. um, eight gigabytes of database space. I mean, I don't know who they're using for their database provider. I can't imagine they have a data center somewhere where they're running it, but. Yeah, it's, um, it's probably on top of some cloud somewhere. Yeah. They do have a zero ver of a zero dollars per month version. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, nice it's to cool. get your project up and going, so. Yeah, very nice. Uh, that's an excellent one. All right, well, nice. I think that's it for our six items. Um, Brian, you got anything else you want to throw extra you want to throw out there for everyone? Yeah, I mean, we had Simon Wilson on recently, um, and he just released a uh, post about uh, the baked data architecture pattern. And that's, um, if you know what he's up to, this isn't surprising, but it's a, it's a nice write-up. 
Uh, Baked Data is bundling a read-only copy of your data alongside the code for your application as part of the same deployment. And uh, it's just an, an interesting and neat write-up, and uh, it's good to go have a read. Yeah, it says most dynamic sites keep their code and data separate. Code runs on the server, and it's stored in like Postgres or Mongo. With Baked Data, the data is deployed as part of the application bundle. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And then also on the live stream, Tim Pogue is uh, doing real-time research for us. Thank you. It looks like you were able to do a pin similar to uh, as you would with PIP when, with um, the Python vendorize. So, yeah, awesome. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Appreciate that. Brandon, anything else you want to throw out for people while we're here? Um, no, not really. Um, I guess maybe do a little bit of self-promotion if I could. Um, I'm yeah, currently sure, working on a, a side project called uh, Released. It's uh, at released.sh. Um, basically, uh, what it is, it's a working on a tool to automate release notes for companies. I've noticed a lot of places, you know, they, when they have releases, they need to go out and like curate all these release notes and uh, have somebody manually do this work that takes hours upon hours every release. Uh, so I'm going to try to automate that and... Yeah, make it easier for people. Cool. That's that looks like a great project and nice web design. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Tailwind CSS. If you haven't tried oh, it, give it gosh. a shot. <laughs> hearing good things about Tailwind. Yes. I'm hearing so many good things. <laughs> must must learn. All right. Speaking of must learn, uh, one must be cautious when learning. It turns out because if we study the circle of AI life, there's this great cartoon here on DevHumor.com. Um, so there's the circle of AI life, and it's got these little pictures of how humanity progresses. So there's some Two humans sitting here analyzing a neural network. It says, human researches AI. And then they're like celebrating near a quantum computer. Humanity perfects AI. Then AI perfects itself with lots of lightning. AI enslaves humanity. There's pyramids. A solar flare disables the AI. And then there's humans worshiping a sun god. Humanity worships the sun god. And <laughs> <laughs> we start over. <laughs> yeah. so there's, there's our joke for the week. It's good. Thanks. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a warning. It's, it's humorous and um, ominous. All this. The same. singularity is coming. <laughs> it is. Um, anyway, awesome. thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Brandon, for coming on the show. It was fun. Yes. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It was great to have you here, Brandon. Brian, good to chat with you all. And thank you, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Python Bytes. Follow the show on Twitter via at Python Bytes. That's Python Bytes as in B Y T E S. Get the full show notes over at pythonbytes.fm. If you have a news item we should cover, just visit pythonbytes.fm and click submit in the nav bar. We're always on the lookout for sharing something cool. If you want to join us for the live recording, just visit the website and click live stream to get notified of when our next episode goes live. That's usually happening at noon Pacific on Wednesdays over at YouTube. On behalf of myself and Brian Aachen, this is Michael Kennedy. Thank you for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues.